Hey guys, welcome back to Nerd Talk. I'm your host, Dan. Today, we're going to be doing the Star Trek Picard Season 1 Season Finale, Episode 10, Etienne, Arcadia Ego, Part 2. I want you to reconsider your present course of action. We have no choice. That is a failure of imagination. What are you doing here? Is trying to save the universe? All ships prepare to fight. It's the end of a couple of months of really pretty good TV. And, you know, there's a lot to say. My mind is just blowing up with stuff. So let's get into it. Uh, Before we start, if you've been enjoying my content, please hit like and subscribe, as well as the bell icon to get notifications when I release new content. As usual, we're going to be starting with an episode synopsis. If you want to jump straight to the review and analysis, go to this time code and it'll take you there. Okay, here we go. We pick up on Capelius on a beautiful scenic shot of the desert, and Narek is infiltrating the Borg cube. He enters the cube and he sneaks by Seven of Nine and Elnor having a conversation when he's attacked from behind by Nerissa. These two siblings are happy to see each other. I mean, they've just survived a crazy adventure, Nerissa falling with the Borg cube and Narek having been captured by the synths and then released. They embrace each other, showing that despite all the antagonism between the two, these two Romulans, they still are family and they still love each other. Soji enters Picard's room where he's being held in captivity so he doesn't interfere with Sutra's plans, and she's justifying why she's betraying Picard and the crew to side with these synthetics. I mean, the obvious reason is that these are her people, but she says, you haven't really given us a choice. You've banned us in Federation space and the Romulans are coming after us. You've made us the villains. You've given us no choice, to which Picard responds in very classic Picard fashion. To say that you have no choice shows a failure of imagination. And I love this line. It's There are certain lines that he's uttered throughout the series and the season that kind of harken back to classic Picard. So I said it in one of the first reviews is that when Patrick Stewart gets back into it and when the line is written well, when it captures classic Picard, this renaissance man, this wise captain, it's just a beautiful thing. And that line, it's very powerful. But I also think it harkens back to the Kobayashi Maru test, in that the Kobayashi Maru test was given to Starfleet Academy students, and it puts them in a situation where they can't win and they have to make a hard choice. It's a no-win situation where you can't have your cake and eat it too. The first person to beat that test was Captain James T. Kirk. What he did was he actually hacked the program and altered it so he could win. He demonstrated outside the box thinking and reasoning, which was it technically cheating? Yeah, but it was a good way to show that a starship captain, one of the important points of effective leadership is to be able to get beyond regulations and see the whole picture in other ways to get to your goal. And that's what Picard is hearkening to here and I loved it. 
Narek gathers up a bunch of grenades that he wants to use to destroy the beacon being built by the synths to summon this extragalactic synthetic alliance to come and wipe out organic life in the Milky Way. So, he is discussing with Narissa, okay, here's the plan. I'm gonna go back there, and we're gonna, I'm gonna use these grenades, we're gonna bring it down. And Narissa says that she should go, but he says, nope, I have to be the one to do it, I have to go. So Narissa stays behind while Narek leaves. As he's leaving the cube, Elnor follows him. We cut to inside La Serena. La Serena is still broken. Rafi and Rios are trying to figure out a way to fix it. So they were given this weird, almost ocarina-looking thing from Saga, one of the synths in Capelli's station. And this tool is supposed to repair things, but you have to use your imagination for whatever that means. But it actually does that, so... Rios sees that something on his engine is fused, and he has to unfuse it. Rafi says, okay, you, you just have maybe picture this thing not being broken, and it'll work. Rios, even though he kind of scoffs at it, he gives it a shot, and this machine starts repairing his engine. And it's crazy. It's this bizarre thing that is very vague, and it's not even... Trechnobabble? This is just straight-out magic, I think. Gerardi breaks into Picard's room where he's being held captive, and she busts him out. Uh, she is not the traitor that we all assumed she was. Back on La Serena, they hear a thumping sound. And they go to the bridge to see Narek uh, is throwing rocks at the, at the ship. Rios and Rafi bring him in, and he explains his plan. Back in the Synth settlement, you know, they're building this thing and it's going to kill us all, so we have to work together to bring this down. I have a bunch of grenades. Suddenly, Elnor comes in with a sword to Narek's throat, and he says, choose to live, which is kind of bizarre because Elnor is the aggressor here? Narek explains to the crew why Romulans and why the Talishar and why the Jadvash are so paranoid about synthetic life. They... They have a prophecy that synthetic life is going to bring about their version of Armageddon or Ragnarok, which is, you know, that's what the admonition promises, right? So how do they stop this from happening? They have to get back into the synth settlement and destroy this transmitter. Okay, but how do they do that? Well, they're coming up with a plan and they're having a little campfire, which seems strange because it seems like time is of the essence here, so maybe they should have come up with a plan on the quick, and then gotten back to the settlement ASAP instead of sitting down and doing kumbaya over a fire because clearly they got back to La Serena during the day and now it's nighttime. So that seems a little strange. The plan they come up with is to pretend that they have recaptured Narek and they're escorting him back to the settlement. They're going to hide the grenades. Obviously they're going to get searched, right? So what they do is they hide the explosive in something benign, something that wouldn't be checked. What would that be? A soccer ball. The soccer ball has actually been foreshadowed. Uh, episodes before we saw Rios playing soccer, and then we saw it in episode 9. A couple of the other synths were playing soccer. So, okay, well, we could probably get this in. We could say, oh, Rios, oh yeah, you know, I love playing soccer. Let's, let's get a game going later. I just have to talk to Picard first, and they can use the explosive. And that's presumably the plan. Dr. Soong is reviewing Saga's final moments, and he sees that Sutra is the one who murdered Saga by stabbing her in the eye. And he realizes, oh my gosh, this 
this synthetic girl that I raised and I brought up is nuts. Okay, and he does a heel turn real quick. He finds Rios and the others, and he decides to help them bring down this beacon. We cut back to La Serena, where Picard and Girati have arrived. Now, you know, it, it's like two ships passing in the, in the night. Uh, the main crew has gone back to the settlement while Picard and Girati have gone to La Serena. Never the twain shall meet. Uh, they have to figure out what to do. The Romulans will be there in seven minutes. They are seven minutes out. What are we going to do? How are we going to fight these guys? Picard says, okay, it's the only thing we can do. He pilots La Serena out of atmosphere, and he's going to intercept this fleet of 218 Romulan warbirds. This one little transport ship. Ballsy. Soon pulls Sutra aside, and he lets her believe that he's still on her side when he suddenly uses a remote control to deactivate her, and she collapses. At that time, he signals to the others. Narek and Elnor start fighting the synths, which is a whole, whole thing we have to talk about. While they're distracting the synth, Rios is just sitting back holding this ball, waiting to throw the explosives at this beacon, this tower that's being built. The problem is, at the base of the beacon is Soji. She's programming it, she's building it. She's all in on this cause, and he doesn't want to hurt her, so he's waiting for her to move out of the way. Move out of the way so I can bring this thing down. Rios has no choice. He opens up the soccer ball, he takes out the explosives, and he throws it. But Soji being a synth, with super good reflexes, catches it and throws it into the air where it explodes harmlessly, and she resumes her work. The Romulan fleet has finally arrived. Soji launches the orchids that they were rapid growing, and they leave atmosphere. The Romulan fleet begin targeting the settlement, and who is leading this battle fleet? Commodore O. The orchids open up and start acting as a fire shield to absorb as much phaser fire from the Romulans to block and protect the settlement, but they're not going to last long. They're obviously just flowers, for however powerful they may be. They can't obviously absorb that many ships. You can't envelop that many ships, so all they can do is just be a shield and hold off this fleet for long enough to get the beacon working for her to signal to these extra galactic super powerful synths and hopefully they can you know come in and destroy this fleet on the quick picard and gerardi are trying to figure out what to do and she comes up with the idea to use the picard maneuver but picard points out look the picard maneuver is it's a good maneuver but it won't work against that many ships it, all it does is create an after image of the ship picard can't do that 218 times and even if they could can they fake the warp signature to make it look like there are just enough ships to block this Romulan fleet apparently he can with that MacGuffin device that thing can apparently create holograms or holographic versions of the ship which will you know they, they can't stop the fleet obviously but maybe they can buy some time to stall this fleet and hope that Starfleet is coming Girati and Picard create hundreds of copies of La Serena, and Commodore O has her fleet, instead of targeting the settlement and just finishing off, target these ghost La Serenas, basically, and start taking them out. Eventually, La Serena is hit, 
But then we hear. In warps hundreds of Starfleet starships. It's pretty cool, I gotta admit. A communique is open to Commodore O, and who is on the flagship? Captain William T. Riker. He tells Commodore O to stand down her fleet, that this planet is under the protection of the United Federation of Planets. They have this weird diplomatic issue now, where did Commodore O and the Romulans find the planet first, and therefore it's under Romulan claim, or did the Federation get to it first? He uses as proof Picard's message. Picard had sent a message last episode saying, I have a first contact situation, I need ships here to help back me up, which means that he made a claim to this planet first in the name of the Federation, since Picard could be seen as a proxy for the Federation. Despite that, she's going to fire away. Commodore doesn't care. She's Jadvash. She's going to stop this synthetic threat. Riker goes to red alert. Shields up. Deflectors. The whole, the whole shebang. And they're about to go at it. These hundreds of ships against these other hundreds of ships. And La Serena in the middle. Soji activates the beacon. And this red portal in the sky opens. And from it, these tentacles come out. This synthetic life. It's, it reminds me of the Avengers where we saw the other end of the space portal where it's just black empty space and we saw aliens coming through. It's the same thing here except for we're seeing this cosmic horror of tentacles emerge from this portal. Picard messages Soji and says, Look, the Federation came here to protect you. We are here because we trust you. Otherwise, our ships would be right with the Rhymelands aiming at the settlement and wiping it off the face of the planet. But we're not. We need you to trust us, and you have to trust me because I trust you. This is how this works. This is how diplomacy, this is how relationships work. It all hinges on trust. Soji turns off the beacon, and the tentacles retract. The portal closes. The situation now being taken care of, Commodore O stands down her fleet, Will stands down his fleet, and the Romulans warp away. With a final message to Picard, Will says, I leave it in your very capable hands, and the Federation fleet warps away to escort this Romulan fleet out of Federation space. At that moment, Picard collapses. He's beamed onto the surface with Jurati, and he dies. Captain Picard is dead. This was a bit of a rough scene, and we cut to the aftermath of that. We see members of the crew kind of pairing off and grieving. So we have Seven and Rio sharing a drink. We have Rafi and Elnor embracing each other. Elnor kind of needing a parental figure, and Rafi, having lost her son, embraces him and says, you just let it all out. But Jurati is noticeably absent. We suddenly see this beautiful room. It almost looks like Picard's chateau, but it's this nice living room. It has a fireplace, and it has religious imagery. These small little statues on a desk. But everything is gray. Everything is very, you know, drab. There's no color. Picard is sitting in a chair. He opens his eyes. Where am I? In comes Data. You're in a complex simulation. 
Data sits down across from Picard. So they're both sitting in these very comfy lounge chairs and they are just discussing what's going on. Am I dead? Data says, yes, you are. For me, if there's one redeeming scene for this entire season, it was this. This was everything it needed to be and it was wonderful. Picard discusses with Data how he feels and how angry he is at Data for having made that decision to sacrifice himself for Picard. And Picard and Data come to the conclusion that, you know, death, it's something necessary. It has to happen. It, it's what makes life worth living, is knowing that it's finite. But, sir, you have to go. And a door behind Picard opens, and it's a beautiful white light. What do you mean? They're calling you back. What? Picard stands up and walks toward the light, and they have a final goodbye to each other. Picard walks through, and Picard wakes up. They have transferred Picard's mind into the golem. Remember, they were working on how to transfer a mind into a synthetic body, and they gave that body to Captain Picard. He has a new life now. He wakes up, and they explain to him, you know, you don't have superpowers. We made sure we didn't give you that because you wouldn't want it. Uh, we gave you an algorithm, so basically you'll live out your life with the normal remainder that someone of your age would have, and you're free of this terrible condition that you've had since the end of TNG. You're healthy now, or as healthy as you can be. He's so grateful to these people, but he says, I, there's something I have to do, a last request. Before he left, Data had requested that Captain Picard unplug him, basically. Let him die. Data was, or all that remained of Data was in this little like, capsule. It was just a remnant memory that Bruce Maddox had managed to salvage from a neuron of Data's. So the Data we met, is it the real Data? Is it not? Is it just kind of an echo of him? That's a question we're going to have to discuss, but it's, you know, this is not only a way to honor Data's sacrifice, but to honor a man, a friend, is to let him die. To let, to make him truly, truly human is to let him die. And with this beautiful eulogy, he slowly starts pulling out D Data's like USB discs. And Data, in this simulation, ages and dies. And it's so somber, but it's so beautifully done. We hear blue skies playing in the background and this shadowy figure takes Data's hand in the simulation and holds his hand as he dies. Pull out to see that it's an image of Captain Picard in his TNG uniform, some type of projection. The final scene is the crew assembling on La Serena, the full entire crew, with a final engage. La Serena warps into space onto their next adventure. And that's how episode 10 ends. Okay. On to the review and analysis. It's the end of everything. The sky will crack. The worlds will burn. Show them you're not the enemy. You're not the destroyer. No! There were a lot of weird things, a lot of good things, a lot of bad things throughout the season, uh, but on the whole, this episode was, 
I liked it. I mean, a lot of people are going to accuse me of, you know, not being picky enough or, you know, having bad taste or whatever, but it's it was just a good episode. It kept me entertained. There were some real echoes of the classic hopeful, optimistic TNG message in there as well as you know, thinking about the nature of humanity, the nature of existence, which is really what good sci-fi should do. It should be a reflection of who we are deep down and what it means to be human. That's what the best of Trek has always done through these 30-plus years. Well, I guess it's been 30 years since TNG, but longer since TOS, right? Is It gives us a way to explore our own humanity. It does force a lot of things, it always has. In this episode, some things were just enough out of place every once in a while, but overall, it was a very engrossing adventure, especially the first time I watched it. I had to do a second rewatch. And, you know, some things, the action, a lot of that, this on second run, it wasn't as impressive, but the real humanist moments were wonderful, and it really, really resonated well with me. Going kind of chronologically just down, down the episode, in terms of what stuck out to me. Uh, um, Narek mispronounces Jadvash. He says, I'm a Zatvash washout. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, well, first off, we learn a lot about the Jadvash right there. Men can be in the Jadvash, as we learn, okay. Uh, because the last time we saw the Jadvash, they were, it was during their initiation ceremony, where they have to see the admonition, and it was all women. You can wash out of the Jadvash, apparently. I guess maybe they bring in people from the Talashiar into this next phase. But it does seem like it's also a family business in that Nerissa, Narek, Narek's aunt, and I guess others in Narek's family were members of the Jadvash. Except for Narek, he didn't make it. He washed out, so you can wash out. And I'm sitting there thinking, is it possible you washed out because you couldn't pronounce Jadvash? Maybe that's why, man. You didn't study him enough to at least know the name of the organization that you're joining. Oh, Elnor. This happens a lot. Uh, I might as well combine these two. Is that when Narek is infiltrating the, the cube, Elnor and Seven are sitting alone together. And she's saying, you know, I, I'm an ex-Borg. These people, you know, you say that maybe they're better off dead, but then that applies to me too. Should I just... Should I just kill myself? And he says, no, because I'd miss you. But it's the same thing that's always been happening with Elnor. Elnor hasn't had enough screen time with anyone to build a connection with which for him to be saying these kind of things. Even at the end, during Picard's death, when they showed the grieving scenes, he breaks down crying. And again, I understand what they're trying to say is that you know, Elnor cares very deeply for Picard. It's just we haven't seen any of that, or we haven't seen enough of it for this to feel impactful. If this was a 20-episode season, or had this death happened in season two, where we we could have seen the relationship grow and develop, it would have made much more sense. But with a 10-episode show with this many players, it becomes hard to take it seriously when you're trying to have an emotional moment with two characters who really don't know each other, or we haven't seen get to know each other. Uh, uh, the opening to the episode has Picard catching a butterfly and you know, I mentioned it in episode 9, but the butterfly is a symbol of change and growth into something more beautiful. And that's 
obviously a little bit of foreshadowing in terms of what Picard, what's going to happen to Picard. When they introduced Butterfly's last episode, in episode 9, I had no clue this was what it was foreshadowing. So this season has been keeping me on my toes. Going on, the beacon to summon the extragalactic synths is being built very rapidly. I think they're using some type of industrial replicator, so it just keeps generating new tiles onto this replica, uh, onto this beacon, and it keeps just growing. And it's growing at a very astonishing rate, to which the signal should have been ready to go much sooner. Just the pace with which it was being built, assembled. That's why I was like, why, why are they having this little campfire, kumbaya session explaining? Romulan myth. Dr. Soong is strangely nonchalant about the thought of synthetics wiping out all organic life, being that he is organic life. He's like, oh, it's, you know, it's a sacrifice. Um, but he, he face turned real quick once he saw that Sutra was nuts and killed Saga. I like this character because he's a little bit flaky. He's very whimsical, but he, like the stakes here were so high. It's literally Armageddon for all organic life in the galaxy. And he's just kind of, ah, okay. As Picard and Gerardi are planning to take off, Picard has a great line. Another classic Trek line is that fear is an incompetent teacher. He's saying that the synths are acting out of fear. They were taught to fear organics, and it's fear is not a good way to base your lifestyle and your actions, because fear can make you irrational. It can make you careful, but it, you, you're not always thinking correctly, and you're not always abiding by your better instincts when you're running with fear. When Soong deactivated Sutra, I thought they were going to do the classic, oh, she had known all about the the device all along and she was just kind of playing dead and then she was going to stand back up and like snap his neck or something. We've seen that trope a lot in a lot of sci-fi robots who have some type of safety, fail-safe mechanism inside them. They know about it the entire time and they deactivate it. So the plan to just, okay, well, I'm just going to blow up this synth, there's a bomb inside. Oh, I deactivated that ages ago. You didn't think I knew about it? But nope, Sutra stays down. Once she's out, she's out, and she was kind of the villain for this two-parter, so that was a little bit unexpected. I gotta say, that was unexpected, because I expected her to get back up and rally the synths, and for it to be Picard on one end, telling Soji, you know, don't do it, and Sutra on the other end saying, do it, you know, the uh, angel and devil on her shoulder. But they didn't do it, Sutra was just down. The crew, specifically Elnor and Narek fighting the synths hand-to-hand seems impossible. And to be fair, they were resta- restrained fairly quickly, but they got a couple of cheap shots in. But we know, we saw Dodge activated in episode one, how fast, how powerful synths are. And even blindsided, like, they got a couple good hits in before they, a bunch of synths actually had to restrain uh, Narek and a couple of synths had to restrain Elnor. Whereas, remember, Dodge was, like, throwing knives and, like, snapping necks left and right. It was crazy, but, okay, apparently these synths are, you know, weaklings, and Dodge was the real deal. (laughs) Picard panic-flying La Serena out of atmosphere was a lot of fun. Um, There's something 
it, it's this weird thing is that it, it's always subjective right why is one bit of humor or levity from a character okay when in another instance it's not I don't know but this one kind of hit my funny bone you have Picard he's like panic flying the ship that he's never flown before it probably has much more modern systems than he's used to and the exact line is Dr. Girardi I'm trying to pilot a starship for the first time in a very long time without exploding or crashing. I thought that was just a really good line. Like he's like, look, I need you to leave me alone. I have, I really don't know what I'm doing here and we're going to die anyways, but can you just give me a second? Like, I know I'm the captain, but come on, man. Like I, I, I'm, I'm wearing a lot of hats right now. So give me, give me some breathing room. Uh, Seven and Narissa have a fist fight. Which is okay, and then Seven kills Narissa by kicking her off a ledge, which... Yeah, I'm not going to shed any tears over Hugh's killer. Justice for Hugh. But at the same time, I'm not... I don't like Seven of Nine being that kind of player in this. Is Seven of Nine is one of the most brilliant minds in the Quadrant. She should be used for that, and I'm hoping that... Over the next season, they rebuild her in the same way they rebuilt Picard and Soji and all of these characters. They're trying to rebuild them, right? And they utilize her more for her thinking, her brains. I don't mind her kicking ass if she has to, but I want to see her reconnect with the part of her that wasn't jaded. I mean, Seven of Nine in Voyager was a little bit, you know, strict. And she was a cynic. She was just very serious and realistic. But I want the character Seven to go back to using her brains to solve problems as well as fighting. Because you can't show the greatest mind not using her mind. It, it just seems like such a waste when you have Seven of Nine. Use her correctly. Uh, a staple of Star Trek is used here. It's, it's a running trope. It's the fact that in Star Trek... Captains don't seem to realize that they can operate in 3D space. So, if you have the planet here and the settlement is here, the orchids form a barrier to absorb incoming Romulan fire for as long as possible. And you have 218 ships here. This is the firing line, here are the orchids, here's the planet and the settlement. Why didn't a couple of the ships go around, above, to the side, or under? Relatively speaking, there's no up or down in space. Ender's Game. Um, go around the orchids and then shoot the settlement with a couple photon torpedoes. Instead of doing the logical maneuvering that a starship should have done, you have 218 ships just run headfirst into these orchids. And granted, the orchids weren't really a threat. They don't have weapons and they can't envelop all the ships. It's just like the path of least resistance go around these orchids and destroy the settlement or your Romulans use your cloaking devices we know you have cloaks because we saw them in a previous episode the callback to the Picard maneuver was great and it was good to see them use it um, these whoever's making these Star Treks clearly loves Trek or at least knows Trek they don't have to love it they might just know it or they have someone on staff who does know Trek we are seeing a lot of connections and references, which are good, but references in and of themselves aren't. They have to connect. And I think the Picard maneuver worked. It was integral to the plot. 
and they actually did something really really cute was they explained how they would use the Picard maneuver here but in classic classic as in TOS style uh, explanation so it was something Futurama had referenced a long time ago was that TOS would they would come up with their Trechnobabble solution like oh here's the strategy we're gonna use and then someone would kind of make a really really easy to understand analogy so that the audience in case the audience wasn't you know understanding that they could it could bring it down to their level so in Futurama they had this cloud creature chasing them and he said okay what if we fire this energy at it and it'll inflate like a balloon and eventually it'll pop right so they used the real world analogy of a balloon here he says okay um, what we can do is we can do the card maneuver but there's not enough of us well if we had if we could find a way to do like make it seem like there are a bunch of us like old airplanes used to do they would drop shards of mirror to give radar uh, ghost images oh okay we understand that what you're trying to do now it, it makes it very very easy to understand I don't know if that was a deliberate choice to do it like that if it was a wink nod I don't know or it was just literally the writers were like okay we have to explain this in a way that makes sense to the viewers but I liked it uh, here's one from the sub um, Commodore O says she orders the fleet to use planetary sterilization <laughs> Planetary sterilization pattern number five. Why number five? Why not number one? Why is there more than one planetary sterilization pattern? Is it dependent on the type of planet? Is it a design thing? Is it an aesthetic thing? How many planetary sterilization patterns are there? These are the real questions I think we need to be asking from Michael Shavin. Uh, you know, come on man, how many are there? The tentacle monster is coming from space might be a reference to Discovery. So we saw futuristic tentacle monsters who may take part in destroying life in the galaxy in Discovery. But those tentacles looked a little bit different and the circumstances were a little bit different as well. Um, so I don't know. I'm hoping that we kind of get more information about the Synthetic Alliance. I would assume we would because Soji is staying on with the crew. Something interesting was these tentacles looked suspiciously like Dr. Octopus's tentacles from Spider-Man 2, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man 2. It even had, like, I'll see if I can get a couple of images to compare, but they look like the same resources were used, or the same uh, CGI patterns were used. But they were very menacing. Uh, it gives us a Lovecraftian abomination out in the void, but a robotic one, which we don't see very often. The Federation ships warping in was great. I love seeing a bunch of ships, but unfortunately there weren't that many types of ships. Uh, some people have said there were only three or four variations. Basically what they did is they created four types of saucers, four types of nacelles, and they just kind of swapped them around. Uh, these images were kind of low res, so you couldn't get a lot of good detail in them. Except for the fact that I believe the nacelles on all of them looked very similar to the nacelles on the Kelvinverse Enterprise in that they start off very fat and they kind of get thinner as they go. Um, if, you, if you just Google Kelvinverse Enterprise, you'll kind of see what I mean. I what, when they warped in, I thought, I, I thought it was a bunch of Akira classes, 
like Starfleet had just started manufacturing, pumping them, those out because they've proven an effective battleship. But they weren't, unfortunately. They, they, something about the saucer section just very much resembles an Akira. I had the biggest grin on my face when Will came on screen and he was sitting in the captain's chair. It was... I've always kind of wanted to see a Captain Riker show. And I know there are his adventures on the Titan. There are books about it. But, you know, Will... There's a reason why he was chosen by Picard to be his first officer. He is a great leader. He's a great officer. And he spent so much time with Picard absorbing this information, being trained by the best of the best. Of course, he was going to become one of the best captains Starfleet has ever produced. And you have, you know, cocky Will Riker on the bridge. He's got the lean and he's saying, look, Commodore O, I need you to stand down. He's, he might be bluffing her. He might not be, but he has this force behind him. He has this charm, this kind of boyish charm, but he's still got authority. He commands respect. And I love Will Riker. Um, and I loved this scene. And for us to finally see Captain Riker on screen was a wonderful thing. I'm a little upset that he's not an admiral. I think if there's anyone aside from Picard who deserves it, it's Will. He just, he might, he might have shot himself in the foot by staying a commander for that long. It was mentioned, I want to say in season, when, when was Best of Both Worlds? Season, kind of season two, because they had the costume. Season three then? Season three or season four um, of TNG. He had been offered a command aboard an Excelsior-class ship. I think the Crazy Horse? And he turned it down, or he kept turning down these commands because he wanted to stay on the Enterprise, and his eventual hope was that he would command the Enterprise. That didn't happen. Eventually, he got the Titan, and he was willing to take that command, but it was mentioned that he's basically sabotaging his career because I think just like in the real, real military, if you get passed up for promotion enough times, eventually they're just going to force you out to make room for a an officer who is willing to grow despite how capable you are so it, that was something a little bit interesting to see and kind of sad because he would have made a great admiral he would be a great person to lead and have as a leadership position in starfleet but of course life circumstances what happened to thad prevented that and that's okay as well that was just as fulfilling to me when Will talks, the TNG theme plays, and it was just so fitting because, you know, cutting to the bridge, talking to a Romulan officer at Red Alert, preparing for battle, unlike the kind of misfit adventures of the La Serena crew, this is classic Trek, and as such, it deserves the TNG theme. Apparently, Will is aboard the most powerful ship Starfleet has ever put into service, and all of the ships behind him are at least similar ships. According to Michael Shabin, the ship that Will is on is a Curiosity-class sh ship, which means it's a heavy cruiser, because the Curiosity-class was what the Ibn Majid was, which was Rios's former ship. Apparently that's the newest of the new ships, the top of the line, which is strange because in the comics, Admiral Picard's former flagship was the USS Ver Veritas? The USS Veritas. And that was an Odyssey class ship. And the Odyssey class starship 
in Star Trek Online, which is now, I guess, not canon, is the most powerful ship Starfleet has ever produced. It's bigger, it's stronger, it's faster, it's meaner than the Galaxy class and the Sovereign. It's basically the Sovereign class replacement, and it's huge, and it's super powerful. So for a smaller ship to now have replaced the Odyssey class as the most powerful top-of-the-line starship is interesting. So hopefully we'll get some more information, more lore about the Curiosity class starship. I want to see what's up with it. I want to see, first off, I want to see an actual design rendering for it, not these kind of weird-angle, low-res images that we got in show. Picard's revival is going to require a lot of existential discussion. It's the old ship of Theseus thought exercise, or if you want to connect it to Trek, it's the transporter death machine exercise, or even getting more accessible is it's the plot of the prestige. When, at what point is something no longer the original? And what I mean is that now that Picard's mind has been copied into this golem, is he technically the Picard we have watched for all this time, for all these years? Or is that Picard? Is the real Picard dead and this is just a very, very good copy? How much can you replace before it's no longer the same person, or in case of the ship of Theseus, the same ship? The transporter thought experiment was that the transporter actually destroys you and just makes another copy, so how does that, you know, it's you step into the transporter and you die, but it doesn't really matter because your thought process continues on in this other being who's essentially you. So it doesn't matter that you die, but then what if you survive and then this other copy was also made? Now there are two of you, you know, it goes into what is the soul and where is the soul and a whole bunch of deep rabbit holes that's going to keep the community occupied for quite a long time, I'm sure. Uh, it's, it's already going on in the subreddit. Uh, we're discussing it, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Picard is now in a, a healthier body, and I kind of wish there was one a little bit more witty, uh, not witty line, but a kind of softer line where he's like, so I'm healthy now, but you didn't give me back my hair. I think that would have been a funny line, but, you know, yeah. They were low on time, and it was still a very serious situation in that he's trying to acclimate to the fact that he's in a new body. The end scene, Rios and Gerardi are now a couple, as are Seven of Nine and Rafi? What? What the fuck? That came out of nowhere. So, remember how I was complaining about Elnor? How he kept crying about things and be trying to be sentimental when it didn't earn it. This is completely unearned because Rafi and Seven haven't had much more than a couple of seconds of screen time together, and I don't even recall if they've ever, ever interacted. Uh, they would have met in episode four, and during the briefing scene, I'm not sure they had much time or even spoke to each other, so that's kind of weird. I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of flack. This is not because I'm against, you know, two women having a relationship on screen. Not at all. Had they done it the right way, which is to say to build the relationship slowly and over time. So, for example, okay, now Seven has joined the crew. Over the course of season two, Rafi and Seven kind of get to know each other, get more friendly, and toward the end, then they become a couple. That's all good. That's wonderful. But just suddenly they're a couple now? Uh, did we even get hints that Rafi 
was gay and or bisexual. Seven either. Not that it not showing it means they're not, but it was just so out of left field. You're just like, what? And at least Rios and Girardi, there was some buildup there. I mean, she was she was grieving, and so they hooked up kind of idly. And it was just, you know, a one and done. But then we saw that relationship grow a little bit. At least there was something. It was fast, and it wasn't as fleshed out as it probably should have been. But it was there, whereas this came out of nowhere. Something I wanted to talk about was a theory regarding the admonition, and I'm kind of... I wish they had gone... I can't say I'm upset that they didn't go that way, because it's like, why didn't you do the thing that I wanted you to do? But I think a more a more interesting story path that they should have taken, or could have taken, but didn't, was in regard to the admonition. And I had mentioned a little bit about it during my episode 9 review, but I want to talk about it here. Go in more depth about it. I wrote a post on the subreddit, but basically here was my thought, and I think that had they gone this way, it would have tied up everything in a way that feels more Star Trek as well. The admonition is a vision sent by this super powerful race that is unable to be read or fully understood or comprehended by organic minds. And the reason why when we've seen the admonition, we saw things like Data and the Starfleet icon, the reason we saw those things was because I believe the admonition, while the message is in there, everything is abstract and it allows for whoever's viewing it to f frame the message within the circumstances that they are experiencing. So while the synthetics in the Milky Way galaxy in the Alpha Quadrant saw Data and they saw Starfleet, some other synthetic life form in another galaxy would see whatever organic oppressor was coming after them or whatever organization they felt was a threat to their existence. It was just vague and ambiguous enough to allow the mind to fill in the gaps. What if, and I mentioned this before, what if it was just a game of telephone? So the admonition was made for synthetic minds. The only life form that could comprehend this high level of information. But instead, a Rhymeling got a hold of it and it drove her a little bit crazy and she couldn't fully comprehend it. And since she was Rhymeling, she framed this message in terms of what their culture is, which is suspicion and secrecy and aggression. Okay, so now you have this image which is now degraded from whatever it originally was. And we'll talk about what I wish it really was in a moment. But now you have this message which is full of anger and suspicion and secrecy and xenophobia. Okay, you have the Rhymeless now forming the Jadvash. Okay, I'm so, uh, this message in my head, it's going crazy. Uh, Commodore O passes that interpretation of the message to Jurati. And not even all of it. I think Jurati even said she didn't give it all to me. She just passed part of it. So now you have a bastardized version of a bastardized version of this message to which Sutra mind melts with Jurati and sees this bastardized compressed version, which it wasn't fully comprehended in the first place. And now her mind, which is synthetic, so the message was meant for her, 
can kind of fit the pieces back together. But it's already degraded, it's already been framed and filtered through Romulan suspicion and human weakness and all these things. And so, of course, Sutra goes nuts and goes, oh yeah, we should wipe out everybody. That makes a lot of sense. What if we were to find at the end of that, that the, like, I don't know, Soji touches the admonition and it was a message of peace and it was from this extra galactic, not cabal of synthetics, but an alliance of both organic and synthetic life. That, hey, once upon a time, our civilizations, and this happens throughout all the galaxies we've seen, organic and synthetic life fight each other. But there is a better way. When you reach a point where you are able to understand this message, call to us, and we will come and we will help broker peace between organics and synthetic life. We will show you how to coexist and form a better civilization, a better galactic neighborhood. Because we are synthetic and organic life, we are stronger together. How Star Trek would that have been is that the information we take, and it's especially relevant nowadays on Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, all these things, we take news and we frame everything in to our own with our own biases and our own interpretation of information. And it bastardizes the core message a lot of the time. Even if the message was b benign, we could still take it in a partisan manner or a racial manner or a, you know, an oppressive manner or a positive manner, whatever, you know, we are want to interpret a message. But to that would be the lesson is that, you know, take a message at face value and, you know, don't always assume the negative, you know, if it's a negative message in and of itself, of course, and but make sure you're checking your own biases. That would have been a beautiful Star Trek message, I think. But it wasn't that. It was just as simple as this menacing tentacle beast coming through and the admonition being literally, okay, call to us and we'll wipe out organic life. So I was a little disappointed with that, and I wish it had gone in a way that kind of ended on a more of an up note, is that out there, not everything is trying to kill us out there is hope that we can be better we can keep that even the federation can grow and be better okay i save this specifically for because i wanted to talk about this last um for all the missteps that star trek picard has made throughout season one the data scenes in this one episode almost almost make up for all of them they were so beautiful they were so well done so well written they were filled with love and without the cynicism of just the modern world and even modern trek in a lot of ways so i didn't even really go into detail about them in the synopsis so i want to talk about it now Picard wakes up or opens his eyes and he's sitting in this kind of gray room which I assumed was like purgatory I thought he was legit dead and when Data walked in I thought okay they're gonna stand up together and walk off into the light and pass on together they sit down and they have this really touching discussion about what it means to be alive and Picard finally has his chance to tell Data how much data meant to him it, it is laid on a little bit thick it feels it's a, you know there have been 
points in this series, in this season, where it's felt a little too sappy. He says, you know, Data, I dream about you every night. I love you to see your strange and beautiful face again. These things, the way they're worded is very strange. And there's a better way it could have been written and done because they actually do it at the end with few words, but it's so beautiful and fitting with their actual relationship and the context with which they know each other. But it also helped me realize that this entire season, Picard, and I guess in-universe the last 20 years, Picard has had survivor's guilt. He had a member of his crew with whom he had grown close sacrifice himself unilaterally for him. Data beamed in, beamed Picard out, and self-destructed the scimitar. There was no discussion, there was no chance to say goodbye, there was no pathos, just goodbye, Captain. And then he shot the phaser and blew up the scimitar. We're going to talk about it from a meta perspective and an out-of-universe perspective in a moment, but for Picard to, you know, hear it finally, it clicked to me. I was like, oh, you you just have survivor's guilt. You feel bad that this person died for you. But, okay, now you can finally have your closure. The light opens, and Picard stands up to head back to life. And Data says, Captain, would you do me a favor? Please let me die. And this entire conversation, I don't want to, I mean, I could go into it line for line, but I don't want to. Please, if you watch one scene over again, watch this scene and then the eulogy scene for Data. The final goodbye that they have, instead of all the wordy, oh, your strange and beautiful face, was this, this was perfect for me. As Picard is walking to the light, he stops, he turns, Data stands up. You know, his captain is leaving the bridge, as it were, you know. So he stands up, he stands at attention. He just says, Goodbye, Commander. Goodbye, Captain. Picard turns and walks away. That right there was the perfect, perfect way those two should have parted. They did it. For all the missteps of the season, that even like this entire scene, but that one moment was perfect. That was classic Trek right there. And it also was, and as the eulogy scene as well, the perfect closure to a character who died meaninglessly in Star Trek Nemesis. They thought it was going to be the last Star Trek movie for the TNG cast, they thought, okay, well, let's, let's sacrifice someone. Maybe maybe Brett Spiner wanted a death scene. Who knows? But Data's death in that movie feels empty, I think, to a lot of people. And it was it felt useless in that he died so suddenly. This beloved character, he died so suddenly, he never got closure. This entire season, this show could have been called Star Trek Data. This was more about Data especially these last two episodes, than anything else. About giving him the end, giving him the closure that he deserved. And they did it. They Man, did they stick this landing with this scene. I loved it. It was so beautiful. The eulogy as well was great, but more than the eulogy was... So they're cutting between the real world, Picard giving the eulogy, and Data. He's wearing a robe, he's having a drink, and he lies down on his sofa because he knows his end is coming. He knows that his captain will fulfill his promise 
and help him die. We see data start to age as these three USBs are pulled out of their socket which will power down this simulation. He starts to age. Something Data couldn't do, right? He's not human, but here he can age, he can experience that. He can know that he, his life is about to end. This shadowy figure holds his hand and it's Picard. And this silent scene with blue skies playing in the background, sung by the lovely Issa Briones, who is the actress who plays Daj and Soji and Sutra. Um, you know, she has a lovely voice. Very, it's a very haunting version. She's not. She's still a young actress, so she's gonna have to work on that. But her singing is spot on. There's a reason why she made it to the cast of Hamilton. This scene said more than. Oh, you're seeing your beautiful face. Just him aging and this ghost image of Picard holding his hand as he dies. And as Data closes his eyes for the final time, this Picard in the simulation is not real. But he puts his hand down and he, he sighs. I don't know what this ghost Picard was, but that right there said more than a thousand words. It was the sigh of, it's over, friend. Go, go in peace. But I will miss you. And I, I gotta admit, I, I didn't cry, but I got, <laughs> I got a little choked up uh, watching. It. I got, I definitely got misty-eyed watching it both times, and even talking about it now, I, I can feel it. Um, beautiful. I, I loved the last fifteen minutes or so of this episode. And there it is, the end of season one. We've hit the end of Star Trek Picard season one. This show took me on a weird roller coaster. None of my predictions came out. Lore didn't come up. And I'm not sure if that's good writing or bad writing. The issue is that I feel like they were dropping breadcrumbs that led into dead ends to keep us on our toes. Which I'm not sure is a fair way to go about it. We were led to believe at first that Soji was the destroyer. But then we were given Sutro were okay maybe she's a destroyer no but it was soji all along we had the borg who were in here for no real reason except for that picard needed to confront the borg again to kind of rebuild himself and then there were a lot of weird um, loose ends that michael shabin had to do like and q a later to answer a lot of it was rush i think they were on 10 episodes where a usual, whereas a usual episode of Star Trek was usually something like 20, 24 maybe um, they didn't have so much time but they also dilly dallied a lot in the beginning there were too many characters even characters that I like you realize that if you're only going to be in it for 3 episodes did you need to be in it at all is there a way to have compressed things cut some things does it make it a failure of a season, a failure of a show, like a lot of people are saying. Not at all. I enjoyed it as a piece of entertainment, and it feels like Trek to me, and I accept it as a piece of Star Trek. I mean, not that I have much choice, it's Star Trek because it's called Star Trek, but in my heart, it feels like Star Trek as well. The parts that they land, they land well. The parts that make it feel like home, Will coming back, Will leading the ships, 
uh, the scenes with Data and Riker. Every once in a while, when Picard, when the writing and the acting some from Patrick Stewart allowed it to feel like real Picard again, those moments were real treasures. And if they can just cut out some of the fat in season two, I think it's going to be much better. Remember, it took it takes most of the Star Trek series one or two seasons to really find their stride. So hopefully with some good writing, with good fan feedback, season two is going to be great. It's going to be a bit better. Effects-wise, there's nothing to complain about. What am I hoping for next season? I really don't know. I'm, I don't know if we'll have an overarching plot. We might have to follow up, continue on with the extra galactic force. Maybe, you know, even though the beacon was cut off, they can still travel into our galaxy and we'll have to find a way to stop them maybe it'll be a bunch of one-off adventures the way a lot of the fan base wanted in that you know just standalone episodes with maybe in the background an overarching plot but they're not in starfleet anymore are these guys just going to be hopping planets doing like deliveries or transporting people and kind of getting into wacky adventures who knows the sky's the limit and i'm looking forward to season two and i can't wait the last three or four episodes have had me really really into this series and the acting especially toward the later half has been great i'm loving the cast overall i'm still a bit weak on elnor but we just need more screen time with him i'm still salty about hugh but i'm sure i'll get over it but overall i enjoyed star trek picard season one and i can't wait to see more please comment down below what did you think of star trek picard season one or what did you think of these review series? How can I do better? How can I make my content more interesting for you? As always, if you've been enjoying these reviews, hit like and subscribe, as well as hitting the bell icon to get notifications when I release a new video. You can find me on Twitter at NerdTalkDan and on Instagram at Nerd underscore Talk underscore Dan. The Picard reviews are over. Look forward to Star Trek Discovery reviews. I'm also working on a bunch of other stuff, so keep an eye out. Until then, live long and prosper, nerds.